doing Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is keyboardist and composer Chuck Kentis. First of all, there's a rumor that Spotify is going to release a platinum tier pretty soon. Now, a significant thing is it's $19.99 a month and includes things like hi-fi audio, a headphone tuner, audio insights, library pro, playlist pro, and limited ad podcasts. Now, except for the last one, we don't quite know any kind of details about anything else, except that they've been talking about hi-fi audio for quite a long time, about 18 months. And they'll be the first to admit that it's the most requested feature by users. Just as a comparison, Apple Music has a lossless tier at CD quality, and that's playable natively on Apple devices. Apple Music also has a high-resolution lossless tier that goes all the way up to 24-bit at 192 kilohertz. Amazon Music also launched an HD listening option for its $9.99 a month Music Unlimited service, and that's at no extra cost. This is called Amazon Music HD, and... Customers can stream more than 70 million lossless, high-definition songs. So that's also a CD quality. Amazon customers can also stream more than 7 million songs at what they call Ultra HD, which they say is better than HD quality, meaning a bit depth up to 24 bits and a sample rate, again, up to 192 kilohertz. Elsewhere in the market, one of the best-known existing high-def streaming offerings comes from Tidal, whose Tidal Hi-Fi subscription also costs $19.99 a month and offers CD quality lossless streams at 44.1 16-bit. Meanwhile, you have Deezer that offers their Hi-Fi tier, and that's at a price of $14.99 a month. And just like Tidal, it basically gives you 44.1 16-bit files, but they're FLAC files. The other thing that we hear about the Spotify Platinum tier is their studio sound, and that's speculated to include either Dolby Atmos or Sony 360 Reality Immersive Audio. So Spotify has been promising this feature for a long time, but now it looks like it's finally going to deliver. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, with all of the mastering plugins that are available today, it seems like people kind of forget what mastering really is and think that it's just adding some level, adding some EQ, and then you're done. But that's not actually true. There's more to it than you might think. First of all, just a little bit of history. In the beginning, going back to the 50s, there was no such thing as a mastering engineer. They were originally called transfer engineers because what they were doing is transferring from what was on tape to a disc. In other words, to what eventually became a vinyl disc. But as things evolved, transfer engineers discovered that 
they could add a little bit of EQ and a little bit of compression, and all of a sudden things sounded better. So there was actually this level of being creative that wasn't there before. All of a sudden you had the mastering engineer, almost as we know it today. But really what started to separate mastering engineers was the level they could get. And this came about because of something known as CDX, which was actually a country invention. CDX was a CD that contained all of the latest releases from all the major record labels, and it would go out to country music program directors every week. What would happen is the A&R people at the record labels would get a hold of the latest CDX, have a listen, and then start to go, well, wait a second, why is my release either quieter than the one before or the one after? And as a result, they kept on calling up the master engineers saying, make it louder, make it louder. As a result, we got into this loudness war and that transferred over to other genres as well. It really got bad when we get to the 2000s where everybody was trying for that last 100th of a DB. It's a little bit easier today in the fact that we don't have to worry so much about that because everything gets normalized at whatever streaming platform you're on. So now things are a little bit more reasonable in terms of level at least. This leads people to believe that all they need is a mastering plug-in and they're done. But a mastering engineer really is a lot more than that. First of all, a mastering engineer has a lot of experience. And if you listen to any of the mastering engineers on this podcast, one of the questions I always ask is, how long does it take before you get good at this? And most of them say at least five years. So that's listening to all sorts of music all day long, every single day. And of course, almost nobody else has that kind of experience, so you can't really expect to do the same kind of work. The other thing is they have a precision listening environment, and they can hear things that nobody else can hear, even in the best studios. So that aside, they already have just about everybody else beat in terms of what they can provide. But there's two other things, and this is overlooked and really important. So if you're doing an album, for instance, or an EP, if you have a number of songs, one of the things a mastering engineer does is listen to all of the songs and try to match them in tone and in level. In doing so, it makes it sound like they're all coming from the same place. They're all in the same environment, instead of sounding way different from one to another. And you can't just do that with a piece of mastering software, and you can't do that when you use one of the online mastering services. Another thing here that's really important is if you are doing vinyl, if you're doing a CD or a cassette, the time in between a song or what's known as the spread is really important. And this is something that is usually determined between the mastering engineer and the producer. But if the producer is unaware, the mastering engineer does that. The time between a song can actually make the feeling of all the songs different. It could make it sound a little lazy. It could make it sound more energetic. You can try to do it on the beat, but the fact of the matter is, the mastering engineer is aware of that. So there's a lot more to mastering than just dialing in a plug-in. And unfortunately, most musicians, most engineers, most people doing this today tend to overlook these traits. My guest this week is Chuck Kentis, who's worked as a touring and session player with artists like Nona Hendrix, Julian Lennon, Power Station, John Waite, Richard Marks, Paul Young, ABC, and Michael Bolton. 
He's also been a collaborator and musical director for Rod Stewart for over 30 years. Chuck has composed for many music production companies such as Killer Tracks, Mega Tracks, Extreme Music, and others, and his music can also be heard on many commercials, promos for Showtime, television movies, and documentaries. During an interview, we spoke about playing sessions in New York City, getting the gig with Rod, writing production and game music, cutting basics with the band, Eurorack synthesis, and much more. I spoke with Chuck via Zoom from a studio in Los Angeles. Let's go back to you getting into the music business and just getting into music. When did that start? Um, you know, I started, well, I started actually playing piano five years old. My mother got me lessons. I hated it. And she says, one day you'll thank me. And I did. I always did. I, you know, I played all through high school, different instruments. I played trombone, drums, uh, flute and stuff into high school. And then I want, I wanted to uh, study composition. And it was, it was difficult. There was a friend of mine who got into Jersey City State, which is a really good, at the time, was a really good jazz uh, college. It was that and Montclair State. Montclair State, Thad Jones was, would teach there. And he got, out of, he got out of high school a year early and started there. So I, went to, I was still in high school. I went to my counselor. I was a senior. I said, look, can I, if I go over there and take classes? And they said, well, go ask them. And I said, uh, went over there and tr- applied. And they said, well, just get a letter from your counselor. So I started taking lessons there and then I went into, uh, they didn't have composition majors. So I went over to Manus College in New York and asked the dean. I got, somehow I got the dean of that, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, to uh, give me composition lessons. I had studied with a, um, a private a composer from Patterson, New Jersey called Richard Lane, who's actually recorded on like Mercury and stuff. I studied composition with him, but that's really one of what I wanted to do is write. But I started playing in bands when I was uh, 16 in bars and, and the scene in Jersey was, uh, you know, you're from the East Coast. So I don't know if you remember this back in the 70s where it was. I played that scene in Jersey. Oh, so, yes, I remember oh, it well. Yeah, it was it was amazing. You yeah. can you could you were uh, you earned a living doing that, at least a lot of bands. I remember looking in the we used to have a paper aquarium. And on any given night, you could go within a 20-mile radius and find like 10, 13, 15 bands playing. Each club would have two bands, you know, a night. You work five sets. We work five sets from nine till three. And you got paid. And we worked like, you know, six, seven nights a week. And that was fantastic. And it's such a shame that that can't be done now. Or it hasn't been. You know, that whole thing disappeared. And it was so great for musicians because you had to get better. You played every night. For six hours yeah yeah it was like you you know and you played with a band and you had you know you you just doing all that playing with a band it makes such a difference in in what you learn and at least for me you know and and it really got my uh chops together so when i started going on you know big tours i i picked up you know some tours in the late 70s early 80s and uh started going like you know japan and australia and all those places and really being the uh, doing that, I was back, you know, what they call backline or, or sideman. I was always side, I never joined the band, so I was always sideman. And I worked my way up. I was, you know, for, from the early 80s, from uh, Nona Hendrix. And then I started uh, and, and I got on, the, there was a click going on in, in New York at that time. And it was guys like Eddie Martinez and Tony Thompson and uh, all these, and a lot of them came out of Nona's band. Uh, Bernie Worrell. I toured with Bernie 
on Nona's tour. We roomed together. <laughs> I mean, I don't, your listeners, Bernie Worrell was the synth master behind all the Funkadelic, and he was on uh, Talking Heads. You know, he played with them. On, you know, he was a prodigy, prodigy player. And so I had the opportunity to, to play with him. And uh, uh, so a lot of people came out of that. And then I, I hooked up with a, a band in New York called Driving School, and it was Carmine Rojas, the bass player, was playing, who had just finished Bowie's record, Let's Dance, up in Canada. And he came back, and, and we were in that band together. And then he was playing with Nona, and, and he got called up to, be, uh, to put together a band for the first Julian Lennon tour in 1985. So we, I was part of that. Uh, we were playing with John Waite. Uh, recording with him. So we went out with Julian's first tour, which was really crazy. It was like, because everybody, you know, he just popped out of the box sounding like his father, yeah. you know, and everybody was so curious. The whole thing was sold out. It was crazy. And we, yeah, it was great. And he was, the thing that was amazing about him was that he had such perfect, like, uh, he, had, he had perfect intonation. This guy never sang in front of a group before and stuff like that. And the freakiest thing, I love telling the story was, we were starting rehearsals at a place called Top Cat in New York City, and we're getting everything together. And he was like, you know, how do I hear myself? And we got, well, we got these wedges here and stuff. And all of a sudden, he starts singing Twist and Shout. And it just, I froze. I was like, whoa, you know, because it just sounded exactly like his father. And he's, his pitch was so, you know, this guy never sang off key. It was amazing. He was so natural at it. So uh, I did that, and then uh, uh, I was on that, and John Taylor from Duran Duran saw me on that tour and invited me to do the Power Station tour. And I worked with Tony Thompson on that, and John and Andy Taylor. And Robert didn't go out on it. It was a singer, Michael DeBar. Mm -hmm. Went out and played that. And we had a back line of extra people, percussionists. Uh, Gary Wallace, who was the MD for like Pink Floyd and a bunch of other bands playing percussion. And uh, did another Julian tour after that. And then Tony wound up doing Rod Stewart's Out of Order record with Bernard. Bernard Edwards, the bass player, both of them from Chic. And uh, so Rod wanted to put a new band together and Tony recommended me. So we were, we were just finishing up a tour with, a, with Carmine, with a, uh, an English artist called Bluesome. And uh, we got a call and we flew out to LA and we, we did uh, we did the auditions and me and Carmine got in the band. That was in May of 1988. And I, I worked with, I worked with him for 30 years. <laughs> I just, I got, I had an accident, got out of the uh, touring in 2017. So it was, uh, that was a long employment. No kidding. I did. I did other things on the side. You know, I can pick up, you know, I did other sessions and stuff like that, but I mean, he was busy. We were out, you know, the first tour, when I joined in May, we went out for 18 months, wow. you know, and we, we hit the States like twice. It was, it was crazy, you know, and he did a lot of, a lot of tour every year. I think there was only one year that we didn't go out in the summer or, or whatever. And, you know, his thing was summer here. Then he'd go down to South America, Australia, Southern hemisphere during January, February, cause that's their summer. Yeah. So we'd always go down there and do Europe in between and stuff. So we were constantly constantly out. So I was really lucky and blessed to have that job for that long. I, you know, I don't know many like even executives work for a company that, that 30 years. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about that. Yeah. Because Rod changed as an artist over that 30 years quite a bit. Yes. 
So I was there when he went to the standards. Yeah. And that was great. You know, the thing what we did with that was he split the show in half. So he would do a first uh, set, so to speak, of, you know, his hits and stuff like that. Then he'd, Curtain would come down and we'd change and the whole set transformed into this 1940s big band. So you had all the, all the players were up, like kind of set up on stands with RS on it. And then we had a string section and I was conducting at the time. I had a, I, I, I took lessons from, I went to UCLA and took lessons from a, uh, a composer, conductor, uh, Tom Sharp. He taught me conducting. And uh, so what, what was going on, the first record. So we, we were really the first as far as using playback for live shows, which is kind of standard now yeah. for most shows, I think, you know, for most pop artists at least. Uh, but then they, I remember Seal was doing it and he was trying to run it with Pro Tools and it would crash all the time. Every show they were doing, they had this big setup and it would just hard. And so there was a guy there who, who came in and, and gave us a new kind of system to work with. And we were using hard drive recorders. So we had two hard drive recorders and this kind of MIDI controller that I can call up parts, you know? And uh, so it was all on hard drive. So there was no computer involved. So it was just like, you know, we go directly to that patch. And the first record that Rod put out, they had, they used a really great arrangements, string arrangements and stuff. But then uh, Clive Davis thought that it was overpowering Rod. So they scrapped them all and they used like synth strings on it, right? So they wanted to use this playback system. So I said, you know, we don't have real strings on, uh, on, on these uh, shows. So I had all the charts, wound up going, I booked, uh, I booked over in Prague, a 60 piece orchestra, you know, string section, and it was so cheap. It was, it was embarrassing how cheap it was. I think we did two full days, you know, and their sessions were four hours, so we did, four four hour sessions we recorded probably about 17 18 songs i think it was 17 grand oh. for the whole thing and it sounded amazing these players were so good so i you know i took that back and what happened was i had the i had the what did i have no maybe i had 30 players or 40 players and i doubled them so they would play it once and play it again so i can i can double everything up it came back edited everything so that was what i used and we had live strings on stage in you know, a live string session. but this was the real sound that they wanted to use especially for that stuff you needed to have that really lush sound so that's what it started with was was that kind of system before i moved over to uh, i had met somebody who does Cirque du Soleil and they were telling they were using ableton with at the time there was no solid state drives out you know and when you used regular hard drives you'd get glitches and it would sleep and i i had tv shows where that would happen uh so they told me about these solid state drives before they were you know, before they were popular and stuff. And, and I, so I went that route and that was like, never failed. That, that thing was solid, you know, wow. on a, just running on a, on a laptop. So Ableton, I had all the, all the stems and everything like that run for strings and things like that. So, yeah. So for that, that part of his career, which he did like four or five records with, that was a part of the tour, the live package. So that had to, had to be done, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, he, Got away from that, started doing other kind of cover, did a soul record, did a, he did a few different kind of genres. Oh yeah, like kind of classic rock. You know, he had some uh, older, you know, kind of standard rock songs on there, Credence and things like that. So, you know, it changed up a lot, but everybody still went for his older catalog and they still do. You go, you know, I mean, we were doing all over, you know, especially in the UK, Australia, 
you know, that uh, his uh, his fan base, you know, they all look like me. They're all gray hair and all, but they've been they've been following him since the 60s and 70s, you know, and they, they come back for that same, you know, he's got a huge catalog, you know, because there were a lot of hits that he had in in Europe and probably everywhere except the U.S., that were big, big hits that never made it here. Like, you know, every beat of my heart, uh, sailing. Um, I don't want to talk about it. Huge that we would end the shows with. And you played them here and they, were, they had no idea what they were. But worldwide, they were they were really big. It's kind of like that because he, he loves the football, which we call soccer. Yeah. He's a big fan of uh, uh, Celtic from from uh, Glasgow. So it was kind of that kind of crowd. You had that, you know, football fan base thing. You know, because they all love football there. So, you know, anybody comes in, he starts doing that stuff and, and they just go crazy. Ah, uh, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you but, said you had an accident and it caused you to stop. So I, uh, what happened was I was on the, it was on the, we were playing in Europe. We just finished a, a show in Gothenburg and I was plan. everybody, and it was like a, a week break and everybody was just staying in Europe and we we're going to hang out there for a while. I had this, I booked a flight to come back to L.A., to pick up my younger son and I was going to bring him back because we were just getting ready to do Isle of Wight and then we we're going to go to Israel and we're playing Jerusalem. So I wanted to take him with me. But the day before the, well, the day of the gig, I was in a, I was in a store and I just slipped and came down on my, on my uh, wrist and my side. I thought I broke my hip because it was like a, it was like, it was raining that day and it was a, it was a marble floor, mm. you know, so I hit hard. And uh, I thought I, I damaged my hip and really didn't feel it in my wrist. And I actually, I played the show that night and then the next day it started blowing up. And thank God I came back to LA and not stayed there because I would have, what happened was I came back, I went to a, a, a place, they, they x-rayed it, said, yeah, I got a break in the wrist and stuff like that. Put a cast on two days later, it's excruciating. They take the cast off, the thing is blowing up, turns out, the thing I've got a staph infection inside of there that's gotten into my blood. So I had to go in there in, in, uh, I went to Cedars that night, emergency surgery, wound up in staying there for a month. Wow. A month. They did four surgeries on my, on my wrist and then another two after that. And it just, you know, so it was about a year. I was hoping I can still play. And what happened was I was having, uh, problems with the, um, the tendons on the top, you know how you have the tendons on top yeah. that lift your fingers, right? So I, this finger, they were trying to fix that tendon and they couldn't fix it. And we we're trying so many different ways. And, and finally, I, real, I, could, I, I realized I could take an elastic, like elastic material and Velcro it to a, to a wrist thing, you know, like uh, tape on the wrist and stuff, Velcro, just to hold it up because I can, I can pull it down, but I couldn't lift it. So the finger's just sticking there, you know? And I lost, I lost reach on it because all my, my wrist just froze up. I can't bend it or anything like that. So it kind of knocked me out of the, and it was hard for them. They had to, they had to bring somebody in, you know, that we, the guy had a couple of days to learn it, but it was an old, uh, uh, Kevin Savigar, who used to play with Rod years ago, came in, you know, like a year later, I'm still hoping to try to play and it just never came back. So my live thing stopped and, and in a way I'm really, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I've been on the road for 40 years. You know, I started in like the late seventies and I was touring all the time. And with Rod, that was like 30 years of solid on the road. And I got two sons and a wife. And so when this happened, I was like, man, I can, and 
you know, they're grown now, but I, I get to spend time and have a relationship with them now. And it's so good, you know, and, you know, all that time, my, my wife, my poor wife had a, you know, really took the reins of everything, uh, you know, so uh, God bless her heart. And, and, and so uh, now that I'm back, I'm really, I've never, this is the longest I've ever been in one place. You know, yeah. this like a year later, I was like, I've never been home for a year. This is crazy. And I really got, I got to love it. And, and, and I started doing, producing other artists and writing. And, and uh, my son is, my son is scoring movies. So I've been working with him on that and, you know, hanging with my other son, who's also, who's started doing, you know, he's a great filmmaker, made some films and did some, doing a lot of music videos. He was just up in San Francisco for that big uh, festival up there. He did, he was directing um, videos for that. And uh, so they're both, they're both busy. They both got their own studios that they're working right now. They've got editing suites and my oldest, my oldest son, in, in addition to the um, scoring, he, he does uh, editing, sound editing for a, for a big podcast from Uprox and uh, all, all kinds of other bits and pieces and stuff like that. But he's, he's always working. So anyway, so that, that, that was the story with that. Sorry, it went off. But then you transitioned into doing film music and production music and scores and you know the uh, yeah the thing I forgot to mention during that time with Rod in the late early nineties I had a friend of mine recommend me to uh, a music production house Killer Tracks to start doing production music for them I did that for like another twenty years. I can't, I've got like, you know, I must have, in, in that catalog I did for Killer Tracks, Mega Tracks, Extreme, all these tracks, you know, all, the whole Killer got bought out by this, by this. Now it wound up on, it's on, it's owned by Universal. It gets used all over the world. So all that stuff that I did back then, and it was, it was a great gig because nobody was really doing that yet. And, and I was trying to, I was trying to introduce them. They didn't even have this at the time. I was trying to introduce them to, let's, do trailer production tracks and they were like that's not gonna work you know i was trying to get them to do that and now like that's all you see out there you know and i was trying to get them on board with it they were great it was because it was a family owned at the time killer tracks was family owned it was the father and the daughter running it and, and it were beautiful people and uh um, so i did that for a long time while i was on the road i would do that at night after the games yeah. <laughs> i would do all this production music so uh it was hard work but you know i find that you take work you take gigs you just take gigs you take gigs and uh and don't complain about it and uh, i'm always i'm always very fair with anybody i hire i never want favors from anybody you know and even everybody who comes to you know i'll do you a favor no i'm gonna pay you because I, I you know that's what we do we're in that business yeah. you know i'm not looking for freebies from anybody you know yeah oh i get it you've done some game music as well yeah, I did some stuff with, uh, oh, I can't remember the companies, but I know I might have, one of them might have been Disney. We did a couple of, uh, I was working with my partner at the time, who was the drummer in the band, David Palmer, who's just fantastic, really good composer. Uh, and, and we produced a lot of stuff together. We actually went and produced, uh, he was in a band called ABC. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. You know, kill we produced a new record for them, uh, Traffic, and, um, and composed on it. And then afterwards, I did... I wound up doing an Animotion record not too long ago that was uh, was recorded here, and the the great thing I love about it is is that they they actually went and cut vinyl and they did the mastering at Abbey Road. Oh, 
really sounds good. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've been lucky. I've actually gone in, in, in mastering sessions with uh, Bernie, Bernie Grudman and talked to him and say, you know, so it's uh, that whole era back in the eighties of working. Cause I did a lot of recording in New York in that time when all the studios were open, record plant, hit factory, right track, all, all of those, Clinton, uh, all of those places and worked with great producers, you know, uh, Phil Ramone, Frank Filippetti, Mike Chapman, all these, uh, Desmond Child on tape, you know, and I know you, you must go back to that oh, yeah. era, you know, and uh, the thing I loved about it was, is that the musicianship really had to be good because there was no cut and paste, number one, there was no anything like, the whole band went into the, you know, when you're doing basics, the whole band goes in, and we all cut together, you know, go back and listen, do little fixes. That's it. You know, you're not going in and redoing your parts and stuff like that. You're, you got to get it, nail it then, you know, so you had to have your shit together, you know, and, and, uh, and, and just the, the, the limitation of that brought out in, in everybody in, in, the, in within the, the producing of it and the, you know, the songwriting, everything about it. You know, there was no like, oh, let's take this course and put it here. Let's put it here. Let's put it here. The only time I saw any of that was uh, Desmond Child used to do these huge work reels, you know, mm. so because he had these big vocal stacks. You listen to Living on a Prayer and stuff. So he would make a work reel. And that those are the days when we had to sync up two studers oh, yeah. or three studers with, with these syncs and stuff. And it takes forever for they're all lining up. And it was fantastic, you know, and you and you worked on these uh, work reels and it sounded great. And, you know, there was a vibe because the whole band is in there, you know, and, and you know, I worked with great, you know, uh, Tony Levin. I worked up a lot in Woodstock with Jerry Murata, the drummer. Oh, yeah. You know, great players, yeah. great players. You know, it was a great time. You know, you, you mentioned about those days, you know, back on tape and everybody playing together, which is completely different today. There are times when you do that, but for the most part, everything is just stacked part by part, and the feel is certainly not the same. Well, no, because you know, you know, if you're yeah. working on Pro Tools, everything they 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 quantize the drums, or they or they they start cutting and pasting, and, and it does. It just takes the thing out of it. The thing I loved back then, which back then was even you know you would was whenever we cut a track, this because I was sideman, so I'm working with a lot of you know vocal vocal stars. Vocalist was always doing a, a, a scratch or, you know, guide track. So you kind of knew where you were in the song and they sang it. And I remember working with a couple artists and, and listening back to the vocal. I was like, holy shit. I said, you got to keep this. This thing's amazing. It just had an emotion to it, you know? Yeah. And then because they're singers, they, they feel like I got to go back in and like do all my little tricks and everything like that. And it becomes so sterile because now you're not, you're not feeling the song anymore. You're just like fixing, you know, this bit and musically or, or lick wise or something. It just like pulls it all out, you know, leave the thing warts and all if it's, if it makes you feel a certain way. And that's what, and it wasn't just me. We were, you know, the whole band going, oh, man, yeah. you got to keep this and try to convince them it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen, you know? I, um, and that's why, like when I do singers now, I want them to memorize it and sing the whole song through. So they're not saying, oh, here's a chorus, let's fly it in. No, sing another chorus because you're not going to sing the first chorus the same way you sing the second chorus. There's going to be a different, if you sing the song all the way through, you're going to give that performance to it. And I'll do like, you know, seven or eight takes, and then we can go in and, and comp some things or whatever. But it, 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 at least you're getting the, the emotion of the song that the, the, the singer is actually singing 
what that story is as opposed to just little bits and words and pieces and stuff, you know? And I find it's just, it just flows a lot better. I was lucky enough to um, be in on a playback recently of the immersive audio mix for the Beatles Revolver. Ooh, immersive? What did they do? Well, it was on four tracks. So they used Peter Jackson's, and what it was is the whole band playing on track one. Right. And then uh, track two and three were vocals. And track four was miscellaneous guitar solos, percussion, stuff like that. Right. So what they had to do is take the band on track one mono and spread it out like we're used to today. They mm -hmm. used Peter Jackson's technology to do that. So they could actually extract a snare drum, just the snare drum, and it was clean as, as <laughs> unbelievable. Wow. And the best part was it was done tastefully. So it, it didn't feel like it was immersive as much as it just felt bigger. But the, my point is, Giles Martin was the one who was giving this presentation. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. And he then began to play some outtakes. And the outtakes of the Beatles playing on the floor, just the four of them, and singing at the same time and singing those harmonies as they're playing, you go, this band was amazing. But again, you couldn't get that vibe any other way. Now, imagine them trying to cut, you know, separate parts and everything like that. You, you know, at the end, it kind of winds up that way. You know, one guy floats in and does, you know, here's my, here's my solo and things like that. Yeah. But, you know, playing like that, that's why they played, you know, and I, I was just talking to my son about this because he did that, did that festival up there and he said some of the stuff was so loud, you know, because mm -hmm. it's like that crazy ass uh, dance music or whatever. Anyway, so I said, you know, I, I, I love the old, like today, I, I, I really, can't get so much out of like if I see a band and everything's coming out of the system, you know, it sounds clean and good. But I said, I grew up playing with a drummer behind me with no plexiglass, a, a guitar player with, a, with a, you know, eight by 12 Marshall amp, the bass player with an SVT with two cabinets. I was playing a, like a Rhodes and organ through a uh, Ampeg V4 amp with, <laughs> with eight by 12s. That was the sound coming off the stage, yeah. you know, and the only thing in the PA was vocals and maybe a little kick or something like that. But all that sound came out and it, and it really does something to people, you know, when it's, it's like that as opposed to coming out of like a stereo, you know, it's like, it's a big stereo and it sounds great, but it's, we've lost that, you know, uh, maybe some bands still do that, but uh, it was funny. I went to see, I don't know if you heard of this band's son. They are like a, they're like a, it's not metal. What is it called? It's like drone. Hmm. But these guys specialize. The reason they're called Sun is you remember the old Sun amps? Yeah. yeah. With 100, 200 watt amps. Yeah. They have like 40 amps like that up there and like stacks of speakers and, and, and this big sound that comes out. And every, I've never seen them before. And I read everybody says, this is a physical experience. It's not just. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I went, I, went around the, I went around the room where they played. And there was nothing coming out of the PA. Everything was coming off the stage. And it was just like this, oh my God, you know. Yeah. I, you haven't heard that in so long. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I just saw Roger Waters last night. Oh, really? How was it? Um, disappointing in many ways. And one of the reasons why was the, the PA was so loud, especially the subwoofers. Oh. And you know what it's like? It's kick drum with the band. <laughs> 
And you go, oh man. I don't know why engineers do that. There's a lot of shows that I've gone to where it's just, it's just overbearing, you know, they just really take that out. I mean, you listen to old records and stuff and the, and the bass and kick are nowhere near where everything is now. Yeah. You know, they were all around 80, 100 cycles, maybe, you know, now everything's like 40, 30, you know, just like, yeah. you know, moving all this air that doesn't, it's not musical. Well, let's talk about, I see your studio and, and it looks like it's pretty complete and I bet you do a lot of your own recording, right? You probably record Yeah, actually, you know, uh, we, I've done a lot of recording here. You know, the drums are basically my son playing jazz stuff, and he's been recording that. And the guitar, they've got hooked up to some loops. I have a vocal booth that I use all the time. Most of my stuff I do is all virtual uh, with a vocalist coming in and the vocal booth doing that. I've had, you know, I've had Rod Stewart in there and John Waite and a bunch of people singing in there and stuff. And they love the sound of this, but for some reason, I'm in a garage, and when I, when I bought the house in 99, I had guys come in and do all the insulation and you know, it wasn't it wasn't like a uh, audio acoustic developer or something like that. It was just these carpenters. They put it together for some reason. The play and what I noticed right away was because I, I still use NS tens, but I use a really powerful amp to you know kind of make them sing a little bit more. And uh, so I was doing the Lord Algae thing of using subwoofer with the NS tens. At the time, he would say, "Don't get an expensive one. Get one at Costco." And that's what I did. I used like an $80 subwoofer. Things always, and anybody came in here and said, whoa, it says, because nobody was using subwoofers with the NS10s. And it just opened them up, you know? And, and, and so I use those all the time. And, uh, but I've got a lot of, you know, I still have uh, my original Mini Moog here from 74, mm. Prophet 5 from 78. Yeah. I've, got my, I've got a console here. It's a Soundtracks console from England. And then I started going in the uh, uh, um, the route of um, modular and pedals and, and a lot of sound design stuff, you know, because I really, I just got hooked on it. There was a, the Eurorack was just starting to come out. If you went down to NAM for, I don't know if people know what Eurorack is. It's, it's the, it's the uh, you know, modular synths, but the new style where the, the cables aren't quarter inch, they're eighth inch. And there's a ton of them, but like 10 years ago, you, the only way you'd see them, remember you go to Nam and they were in the basement, Yeah, you know, yeah. tucked Not, away somewhere, a little corner, right? Now they're wow. up on the first floor as this whole big deal. And the, the, the things just blew up. So there was a program, there is a program online called VCV Rack. And at the time they really hadn't put out a, a real version of it. It was just kind of an experimental one. And you went on there and you were able to build these uh, modular systems. It was free, you know, and, and you were, and it did what, other things did you know there were actually modules that were developed they were developed after uh, like major major uh, uh, like uh, mutable instruments has a whole series of stuff and they were using open source so it was like anybody could anybody could use that source to build a, a mod of it you know so i started getting into that i've been doing that for you know the last 10 10 years or so and building up on on those systems and finding some really very progressive experimental instrument makers you know, there's one in Russia in particular, uh, his company called SOMA Labs. So, uh, yeah, so this guy makes these instruments there they're, and, and it's just all this cross modulation. It's just like nothing that's out there. You know, it's a totally new thing in the sound because it's so it's one of those things where, where the first thing that came out was a Lyra 8, eight oscillator uh, board. It's all cross modulation. He said, you know, you, you can set this up, take a picture of the settings, go back to that 
won't be anything like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like you're doing it. It's one of a kind as you do it, but it's very performance oriented. And what I like to do when I'm doing electronic music is record stems where I'm actually manipulating a lot of the uh, modules, right? And then I, I take those, I put them through, I've got like about 12 really exotic boutique pedals that I use and do, you know, modulate those as well, mid manipulation on those and then bring them back and like stack them and then mix, you know, do mixes where they're fading, things are fading in and out and stuff. So it's becoming more like a composition. The thing about modular right now is if you go to systems, you'll see somebody with a modular system with a patch going, you know, and that's it. And, and it's like, that's the thing. And that's kind of like the purest way of like, you know, here's my patch. Here's what it sounds like for 30 seconds or a minute, you know, whereas I like to do, I, you know, I want to go back to comp composing like, like Morton Sabotnik and stuff where pieces are, you know, 10 minutes long and you've got, you're actually, you know, it's, it's, of development musically like a, like a sonata would be or something where things are coming in and out and they're actually, you know, telling kind of a, you know, an imaginary vision, you know, so, so that's kind of what I'm doing now. That's very cool. I, and what I've noticed is people that are into Eurorack stuff are really into it. It's like, you can't get into it just part way. It pulls you in. I was doing it. I bought my first modular system from uh, make noise. I bought what they called a shared system. And it was a system that it was already put together and, and they already had artists who were recording on that. You know, whoever had a shared system was making these recordings and stuff. So it was like, you all, you all had the same thing. And uh, then when VCV Rack came out with, on the, uh, you know, virtual side, I introduced, I introduced my son to it and he introduced his friend to it. And that was like, it must've been like it, maybe a year and a half ago both of these guys have big, like huge four row setups. And, and my son, Avery posts every day. He's got a new patch up. This guy, <laughs> uh, Aaron Goldberg does the uh, switch uh, live broadcast three hours, like every night he'll do. And he's really good. He just, he's doing the concerts now. So within a year and a half, these guys went absolutely mad. And uh, no, that's what it is. It's kind of, it is a, it becomes like a serious, obsession and thank you know that's why they it's great that they had vctv rack because then you were able to learn it before you got it you know yeah so the learning curve wasn't in the hardware the learning curve could be in the software where you learn and you can actually put this together a system that you're going to buy and then when you get it you kind of know what's going on already so a lot of these guys are really ahead of the curve and it's, it's great that's very cool all right chuck last question what's the best piece of advice that you ever received or maybe something that you learned along the way? Oh, okay. Probably two things. When I was playing with Nona Hendrix and it was a funk band, I learned funk and stuff. And, she, and you know, a lot of musicians have the habit of like, you're not sure of yourself. You kind of back off. He's got, and she would say, get it forward, just play it forward no matter what it is, you know, so that it's, you know, it could be wrong, but at least you're there with it, you know? And, and I kind of got that. It was kind of loud and proud, you know, type of thing, you know, rather than sneaking around stuff, you know? So mm -hmm. it, that changed, that changed my playing a lot. And, uh, you know, I, the other probably best advice that, um, that, you know, when I was working Comer and Rojas and he was, he was the MD at the time with Rod Stewart and stuff. And it was just about appreciating and, and getting the job done and not, being you know when you're a side man you got to tone it down you know you can't 
I'm, I'm whatever, you know. So as a side man, it's good because it, it, you keep that humility, but you still do the job that you're, you're hired to do. So it was really kind of about, you know, no matter what, we get the job done, we get it done right. We don't moan about anything, you know. And that, that served me so well throughout my career, you know, and, and uh, uh, because then word gets around that you're, you're good to work with. And that's what you want, you know. You don't want to be like, this guy's an asshole, don't hire him. Yeah, you know? yeah, right, right. And, and, and so that, that, you know, you have to create that, man. And, and sometimes a lot of people are not, don't do that, and they become very bitter about things, you know. Like, um, so that, that's it. If you're going to go out loud and proud and, and just – do your best and, and, and don't give up on it. You can find out more about Chuck at ChuckKentis.com. That's Chuck, C-H-U-C-K, Kentis, K-E-N-T-I-S.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for our latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 